Bismillah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Elhamdülillah, Salatu Vesselamu Resulillah Ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men ettebaa sunnatuhu ila yumuddin So we left off talking about these different kinds of knowledge um, And he kind of, he kind of like gives more examples of similar types of things about just you know the the outward knowledge versus the inward knowledge and how the outward knowledge does certain things for us but we have to recognize its limitations and that without the inward knowledge then it will lead us to ruin and so on and so forth um, so he encourages people he says for example now he brings this example on page 59 <laughs> So he says the preeminence of the companions was not the, the the main people from the companions. Their preeminence was not because of their knowledge or their mastery of theology and jurisprudence, but it was because of their mastery of the knowledge of the hereafter. So we talked about the knowledge of the hereafter as things related to the purification of the heart and the deepening of one's knowledge of Allah and so on. And he says Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu did not surpass the people of his community by an excessive amount of prayer, fasting, narrations, legal rulings, or discourse, but by a thing or secret that abided in his heart, as was borne out by the Master of Humanity, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So there's a famous statement that says that um, that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu didn't attain what he attained in terms of his preeminence over the other companions because of these outward things. And we know that he had those outward things. Like, of course, w- we have that famous narration of the Prophet them when he came, they were at Fajr prayer, and he started to ask them, who has visited a sick person today? And Abu Bakr raised his hand. He's like, who's followed Janazah today? Abu Bakr raised his hand. He's like, who's given charity today? Abu Bakr raised his hands. Uh, how, what is it? I think there's four or five of them. Um, hmm? Who visited a sick person? He said that. I think I said that one. Sick, charity, Janazah. Fasting, who's fasting was one of them. Yeah, he was fasting. Yeah. And then, and and then the <laughs> huh? And feeding the poor, something like that. Abu Bakr raised his hand for all of them at Fajr prayer. At Fajr. And the Prophet said, Whoever does all of these things in one day, then p- basically paradise is theirs. Abu Bakr had already done it by Fajr. So it wasn't that he didn't have these things. But still, they say that But what gave him his preeminence was Bishay and Waqara fi Qalbihi. It was because of a secret that was in his heart that made the quality of those things so much better. Even, even, even though his quantity was high, add on top of it that his quality was high. So he's saying, don't forget that when you're thinking about getting this knowledge and that and so on and so forth. <coughs> so let your aspiration be in the seeking of that secret, for it is a priceless gemstone and well-guarded pearl. Renounce everything that the majority of people hold in high esteem and venerate for various reasons and motives whose elucidation would be too lengthy for this section. The Messenger of God them, passed away leaving behind thousands of companions عنهم, all of whom were knowledgeable of God. The Messenger of Allah praised them all while there was no one among them who had mastered theological discourse and only about ten from them took upon themselves the task of making legal rulings. This is something also that's not always uh, recognized is that you had all these Sahaba, they were also wonderful and great. Not all of them gave fatwa. 
like they stayed with the Prophet, they learned the Quran, they knew his way, so on and so forth. Not all of them gave fatwa. Small number of the companions were from the Muktirun min al fatwa. They were the ones who gave a lot of fatwa. And, the, and then there was another group who were like in the middle, and there was another group who would give a little bit, and then there was everyone else. But in the end, that whole thing is like maybe 40 people, 50 people from the Sahaba. Radiallahu anhum and a hundred thousand were with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Hajj and Wada'a, right? At the farewell pilgrimage. Over a hundred thousand. So it's it's actually a very small number, even in the realm of knowledge. Right? Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu was one of them when asked for a legal ruling, he would respond to the inquirer, go to such and such a leader who has taken on the matters of the population and place it around his neck. Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu. So he was saying basically like Look, it's not that he couldn't do it. What he's saying is that someone else already has the position of giving the fatwa. So go and leave it on their neck. I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> I don't need to. Someone else is already doing it. I don't need to. The, the way the people were. Like, subhanAllah, they, like someone else already giving fatwa. All right, go to them. I don't need to do it. I don't need to have this on my neck, right? We have the opposite phenomenon for the most part now, right? Opposite phenomenon is everyone wants it on their neck. <laughs> everyone wants it on their neck. This is what Allah said. This is what the Prophet said. This is what Islam says. When Umar an passed away, Ibn Mas'ud stated, Nine tenths of knowledge has perished. Perished. When Umar an passed away, Ibn Mas'ud an said, Nine tenths of knowledge has perished. Just as a reminder, Ibn Mas'ud is the Senad. Like all of the schools of law go back to particular kind of like it's a, it's a it's a little bit of a generalization, but the schools of law go back to the particular like areas that they were around and the people that were those go to companions. So like Malik is in Medina, that's the school of Ibn Omar and Omar and uh, others. Uh, some people are in Mecca, that's the school of Ibn Abbas. And others, some people are in Iraq, like Abu Hanifa, that's the school of Ibn Mas'ud. So Ibn Mas'ud is saying when Omar died, nine-tenths of knowledge went. Ibn Mas'ud is the same one who said, if I knew of anyone anywhere who knew something about the Qur'an that I didn't know, I would travel to them until I learned it. He knew everything there was to know about the Qur'an. Ibn Mas'ud, radiallahu anhu. He says, Omar died, nine-tenths of knowledge died. So what is he talking about? Right? That's, that's the question. What is he talking about? If he has all of this knowledge and other companions are still alive, Ali radiallahu anhu is still alive, Uthman is still alive, Abdullah bin Umar is still alive, Abdullah bin Zubair is still alive, Abdullah bin Abbas is still alive. These are like great scholars from the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. Uh, so what does he mean? On which it was said to him, do you say this when the most illustrious of the companions are still among us? To which he responded, I do not intend knowledge of rulings and opinions. I mean knowledge of God. Yes, I do not intend knowledge of rulings and opinions. I mean the knowledge of God. <coughs> so Ghazali continues his rampage on the scholars after that. <laughs> I really like it. Scholars need to get rampaged on a little bit. Especially by their own. I mean, he's one of them, right? Do you suppose that he intended the discipline of theology and dialectics? Why do you not strive to realize that knowledge of which nine-tenths perished with the passing of Umar radiallahu anh, in fact, was the, he was the one who closed the door on theology and dialectics. He was like, he closed certain things. He told them, don't talk about Qadr. He hit them with a the stick. 
Like people are trying to talk about Qadr and debate Qadr and stuff. He was beating them. This is Omar. <laughs> and still nine tenths of knowledge is gone. <coughs> He says specifically when with Omar. Know that attaining preeminence with God Most High is one thing, while attaining renown among the people is another thing. Hmm? Know that they're not the same. Know that they are not the same. Allah. Abu Bakr gained renown due to the caliphate. His preeminence was due to the secret that resided in his heart. So what does he say? He, he gained renown because he was the Khalifa. But he gained preeminence because of what was in his heart. They're very different things. Omar gained renown based upon his administration, his siyasa. His preeminence was due to his knowledge of God. Right. And so on. Mm. The divisions of that which draws one near to God Most High are three. Knowledge in and of itself, which is the knowledge of unveiling, which we talked about before. Work in and of itself, which is comparable to the justice of the ruler, for example, and is good governance over the people. So this is a kind of work that brings good to the people. So there's, it brings you closer to God. Uh, and a combination of knowledge and works, which is the knowledge of the path of the hereafter. Those of this path are among the scholars and those who accomplish the worthy deeds. Those are the true scholars. The ones who bring these things together. Consider yourself. Will you be on the day of resurrection among the company of those who accomplish worthy works solely for God Most High? Or will you be among the scholars of God or in both companies and thus play an active role in each? This is much of much greater value for you than blind following merely to gain notoriety. So basically he's saying, you know, just khalibanik. Then he says, now we're going to talk about <coughs> the people of the, the imams of the hereafter. The imams of the hereafter, the great imams of the religion, and a little bit about them so that we understand who they really were. MashaAllah. Tea was really remarkable today. Allahumma barik li ahna tea. Ahna shay. Mandalla ala ahna shay. Woman shariba shay. Woman tasharaba shay. So now we will cite something of the circumstances of the jurist of Islam that you may learn from them that which we have mentioned uh, is not this, so that you know that this criticism that we mentioned is not about these people. So now we're going to look at them so you know that it's not about them. The jurists that can constitute the leading figures in the study of jurisprudence and leadership of the community. I mean those with large followings in the schools of jurisprudence. Look what he says, it's interesting. Are five. He says they're five. Al-Thawri, Malik, Abu Hanifa, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and Al-Shafi'i. <coughs> usually we're familiar with the four, right? We're not usually familiar with Al-Thawri. Hmm? No. At that time, it must have been. I don't know. I, I don't know I, I, if, if we had time to go to the commentary. There's this really nice, gigantic commentary on the Ihya. And you, you just read it and then your your ajal is done because <laughs> like you spent your whole life in it it's huge Murtada <laughs> Zabidi Zabidi from East Africa
the Zabidi is interesting. He has an ijazah to the Sultan. Which one was it? Can't remember who it was. It was. I have a little archive that I started and I didn't get very far in. It was called the Archive of the Scholars and the Activists. <coughs> and this was one of the examples. He's the Khalifa. He wrote to a Zabidi requesting from him that he can have ijazah from him. And his Zabidi responds and he gives him like, this is what this is the ijazah and I give you this and that and so on and so forth. You know, he's like showing respect. He's the, he's the Sultan, sorry, not the Khalifa. He's the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Zabidi's late, like the last couple hundred years. <coughs> Each of them was a devoted servant of God, an ascetic, a scholar of the knowledge of the hereafter, a jurist well-versed in the matters that concern the well-being of the community in this world, and a seeker through his knowledge of jurisprudence of the countenance of God. Each of them had these five qualities. They didn't just have one. That's why they were the imams. Then Imam al-Ghazali again says, Of all these five qualities, the contemporary jurists have followed them in but one. Staunch commitment to and exaggeration in the study of the subordinate branches of jurisprudence. <laughs> He's the only... <coughs> Uh, basically he's saying that the only one that they cared to learn about was the one about the, the rulings of fiqh they didn't care to learn about everything else. they didn't care to worry about the hereafter and piety and all these other things that they were supposed to worry about all they cared about was the knowledge of fiqh so he's again you know throwing blows at the people of knowledge so here we are the imams of jurisprudence number one is imam al-shafi'i Imam al-Shafi'i. There was a really good lecture series, Assalamu alaikum, that uh, I think it came out like when I was in college. I don't know if anyone had ever heard it. It was called The Four Imams by Hisham al-Awadi. Anyone ever hear that one? Four Imams by Hisham al-Awadi. You can probably find it on YouTube now because everything's bootlegged on YouTube. But it was really good. He did another one on children around the Prophet them that was really good as well. The four imams one was really good. He did basically three CDs on each imam. One would be on like the character and the qualities of the person and one would be on like uh, basically like their life circumstances, what they, the political issues they got into, all this kind of stuff. And I forget what the third one was on. Probably on like their jurisprudence or something, which I didn't care about at that time. Um, but subhanAllah, it was a really good series. A lot of the stuff that you hear me say about the Imams is from that series. A lot of the stuff that I use in regular everyday teaching is actually from the stuff that I learned before I went to study. Because like that was the early period of my Islam, I remembered more. And there wasn't like that much. So it was like all the Riyadh al-Saniheen, that's where all of my hadith come from Riyadh al-Saniheen. All of the stories come from the four Imams. All of it's, all, it's all from that early stuff. And then you just like learn too many fiqh opinions that you can't keep straight anymore. <laughs> so the Imams of jurisprudence, he starts with Imam al-Shafi'i radiallahu an. Why does he start with Imam al-Shafi'i? Even though chronologically, Abu Hanifa is first, yeah, because the Ghazali is a Shafi'i. <laughs> <laughs> so he starts with Shafi'i. As I mentioned before, pretty much, I don't know of an exception to this rule, pre-modern Muslim scholars, every single one of them had a madhab. I don't know, like, of an exception to this. Every single name you'll ever hear, anyone you can think of, they all had madhabs. Even, even Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, they were Hanbali. 
Ghazali was Shafi'i. He was very, very like good Shafi'i. Like he wrote, to my knowledge, at least three major works in the Madhab. The he wrote like an intro text and a middle level text and a high level text in the Madhab. Maybe even more. And his usul, of course, yeah, is very strong. His w his work on jurisprudence also is very strong. Anyways, Mama Shafi. That he was a servant of God is manifest from the account that cites that he would divide the night into three parts. A third for the study of knowledge, a third for prayer, and a third for sleep. Al-Rabi'ah reported that Shafi'i would complete the recitation of the entire Qur'an 60 times in the month of Ramadan, all of which was during prayer. While, while Al-Buwiti, one of his students, would complete the Qur'an once a day. So once a day. It's twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> his, student, his student only once a day. He was twice a day. And Hussein ibn Ali ibn Yazid and Karabisi narrated, I spent several nights in the presence of a Shafi'i. He would pray nearly one-third of the night. Yet I did not see him recite more than 50 verses, or if he exceeded this, 100. Now we're not in Ramadan. Whenever he recited a verse conveying mercy, he would ask God Most High to bless him and all of the believers. Whenever he recited a verse conveying chastisement, he would seek protection from it and would ask God for deliverance for himself and for all the believers. It was as though both hope and fear were drawn together in him. Behold how he limited himself to 50 verses. This indicates his deep penetration into the secrets of the Qur'an and his reflection on them. As Shafi'i said, I have not satiated myself for 16 years. For satiety weighs heavily on the body, hardens the heart, diminishes intelligence, induces sleep, and weakens one c one's capacity for devotions. Huh? Pretty <laughs> intense, huh? Who is Shafi'i? Oh, Ghazali has, yeah. Yeah, Shafi'i radiallahu anhu said, I have never taken an oath in the name of God Most High, neither truthfully nor deceitfully. <coughs> Meaning he doesn't swear by Allah. He doesn't like take an oath on Allah because he's not, it's too serious for him. Behold his reverence and esteem for God Most High, how this reveals his knowledge of God's sublimity. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. A Shafi'i was once questioned concerning a certain matter on which he remained silent. So it was said to him, Are you not going to respond? May, may God bless you. To which he responded, Not until I know whether the merit resides in my silence or in the response. I'm just quiet. I'm just trying to think about it. Is it is is the is the good for me to stay quiet or is it for me to respond? And he's just thinking about it. <laughs> so they're like, you're not going to say anything. <laughs> not until I figure it out. Consider again how carefully he guarded his tongue, for it is the body part that most intensely holds sway over the jurist and the most disobedient of the body parts in resisting control and subjugation. From this narration, it is clear that he did not speak or remain silent except to obtain favor and seek reward. Radiallahu <laughs> an. Ahmed ibn Yahya ibn al-Wazir related, A Shafi'i left the candle market one day and we followed him. When we encountered a man vilifying a scholar, a Shafi'i looked at us and said, Safeguard your ears from hearing obscene language as you would safeguard your tongues from uttering it. For the listener is the cohort of the speaker. Allah forgive us. What have we done? A shameless person looks for the vilest contents of his vessel and wants to pour it into yours. It's still the same quote. 
A shameless person looks for the vilest contents of his vessel, meaning his heart, and wants to pour it into yours. And were the speech of a shameless person to be warded off, the one who wards it off would be happy, just as the one who spoke it would be miserable. So much of like the stuff that gets said is just clickbait, you know. So much of the articles that get written, so many of the things that get said, so many, so much stuff that we pay attention to, so much stuff that we give weight to. It's like he's saying exactly what they say, right? Like when someone puts, don't, don't give them more views, because if you give them more views, you're amplifying their impact. And so, <laughs> guard your ears from hearing obscene language, as you would safeguard your tongues from uttering it. Don't even see it. You don't even need to see it. Don't even see it. Shafi'i radiallahu anh said, One wise man wrote to another, You have been given knowledge, so do not sully your knowledge with the darkness of sins, lest you remain in darkness on the day the people of knowledge stride in the light of their knowledge. One wa- Shafi'i said, One wise man wrote to another, You have been given knowledge, so do not sully your knowledge with the darkness of sins. Lest you remain in darkness on the day the people of knowledge stride in the light of their knowledge. What's interesting about that too is that that's what his teacher told him. Hmm? When he came to Malik, that's what Malik told him. So Shafi'i was a student. Shafi'i is from Gaza, by the way, in case anyone didn't know where he's born. Shafi'i was born in Gaza. Allah give it liberation, inshallah, in our lifetime. And um, he was an orphan. Shafi was also an orphan. I read recently, actually, he was also one of... There's, you know, this knowledge of lineology that was very prominent among some Muslims. Abu Bakr was a scholar of lineology, genealogy, right? So the Prophet ﷺ would take... That's one of the benefits of having Abu Bakr with him. Was that anyone they meet in any journey or anything, Abu Bakr can know their name and he knows everything he needs to know. He knows everything about their people and their family members and their tribe and like he knows everything, right? So there were people that had that knowledge. That was the knowledge that the Muslims cared about. I only found out recently, I was looking up this issue because I was trying to figure out because this is an issue of identity, right? Your nesab or your nisba is an issue of identity. So you would say like, for example, they're from this tribe or they're from that place or they're from this school. They're from this madhab, they're from this approach to spirituality, whatever. These are kind of like the different things you would see people identify by. So one of the things I'm trying to figure out is like, this must be worked out somewhere. What, what are the kind of things we identify by and what are the kind of things we don't uh, in, in our tradition? It must be there. I haven't found it yet. But uh, it's only been a couple of days. Inshallah, I don't forget. But it turns out also, my point is, it turns out, that there are people in Muslim history who are specialists in the genealogy, like the the female line of the genealogy. Because oftentimes the genealogy would go along the male line, right? So even when we talk about the genealogy of the Prophet them, we know his, it's the male side, right? He's the son of Abdullah, he's the son, and it keeps going, right? But, and there are a handful of Sira books that mention the, the mother's side, but it turns out that Imam al-Shafi'i was a scholar of genealogy of Ummahat. He was a scholar of, of, the, of the lineages on the, on, the mother, on the mother's side. And all of that is to say that he was also an orphan. He was raised by his mother. And his mother is the one who took him to Medina to learn from Malik. And 
he comes in Urta Mecca and Medina and uh, Imam Shafi'i was a genius you know they say that when he wanted to study with Malik who was the great scholar of that time right when he was a young boy he wanted to study with Malik so he, he managed to get a hold of a copy of the Muwatta the Muwatta of Imam Malik his, his book of narrations hadith and statements of the companions and fiqh rulings and so on it's all in the Muwatta of Imam Malik to give you some perspective this is the only fiqh, uh, it's the only hadith book that I've read from cover to cover with on with somebody and we read it I think it took us like probably three days all day like we meet in the morning we read the whole day <laughs> you finish after like three days not the whole day I think we were reading like eight hours a day not twelve so you're just like one hadith after the next after the next after the next until you finish so he got a copy of the Muwatta they say memorized it in like eight days Imam Shafi'i was known for having photographic memory they say he would have to read books by covering one side because if he's reading one side and the other side is, is showing he's gonna <laughs> he's like reads them both at the same time it's, it was so he memorized the Muwatta in like seven eight days and then he went to Malik and he wanted to study with Malik when he came in front of Malik, Malik told him, he said, he said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ قَذَفَ فِي قَلْبِكَ نُورًا فَلَا تُطْفِئْهُ بِظُلْمَةِ الْمَعَاسِ He told him, Allah has, has placed in your heart a light, so don't extinguish it by the darkness of sins. Right? This is what Malik told Shafi'i, one of the first things he told him. So Shafi'i said, One wise man wrote to another, You have been given knowledge, so do not sully your knowledge with the darkness of sins, lest you remain in darkness on the day the people of knowledge stride in the light of their knowledge. So this whole conversation about knowledge and light and the light of the heart and all of this kind of stuff that Ghazani's been talking about, you understand now it's not like he made it up 400 years later or something. Like They were talking about this from the very beginning. Right? They were Malik, Malik is telling that Malik's uh, like right there generation after the companions right there in, in Medina he's not anything Malik is the one who said that I didn't sit to give fatwa until 70 of the people of Medina told me that I can from the scholars of Medina right so like Malik says to, don't extinguish the light in your heart he knows that the light in the heart is a real thing it's not like some made up thing that these weirdo people in Islamic history made up later on like some people like to talk about Allah guide them and us as concerns his ascetic nature, radiallahu anhu shafi'i said, He who claims that he has combined in his heart love of the world and love of his creator is indeed lying. And Humaydi reported as shafi'i departed for Yemen with some people of authority. When he reached Mecca, he distributed 10,000 dirhams. Uh, he pitched his tent in a place outside Mecca and the people came to him in great numbers. He remained there until he had distributed all of it. They would, sometimes they would like you see these stories from these people sometimes they would get like a gift so I heard a story like that from a modern person too which one was that I want to say it was in Habib Abdul Qadir al-Saqaf but I'm not sure one of these modern uh, shuyukh who lived in, in, in Arabia were originally from Yemen so they said they were in his gathering you know he's like contemporary people like Dr. Omar knew him you know it's like just a little bit above us so he uh, they said that someone came in his gather. he would just have like majlis right they just have majlis anyone comes with all of their needs 
If you don't, you can't just email everyone, right? <laughs> Everything you have, you can't email and text them. So the sheikh would sit, everyone comes, whatever they need, one person after the next. There's no like schedule or anything. However long it takes, it takes. And that's like how they live their life day and night. So he said that someone came into the gathering, he, he said salam to him, he asked him to pray for him, so on and so forth. He gave him a bag full of money. So the sheikh took the bag full of money and he gave it to his assistant and the assistant went and put it on the side. And then time passed, more people came, more people came, more people came. Then someone came and they needed money. So then he told the assistant, he brought the bag and he put the bag in front of the person. The person took the bag with the money has gone. <laughs> Never even looked in it. He doesn't know how much is in there. Doesn't know what's in it. It's just... It came in, it goes out. Came in, it goes out. Came in, it goes out. This is the way they were. So Shafi, they're saying he set up his tent and he just started giving away everything. Hmm? Is that the one with his mom? Or no. It's the story with his mom. He goes to visit his mom. After he distributed all the money that he was given. And, they sh- and he's not going to know her. And she asks him, what happened to the money? And he's like, I gave it all away. She's like, good. <laughs> you kept any of it, I would have not let you in. SubhanAllah. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Then on another occasion... Upon leaving the public bath, he gave the attendant a great amount of money. He dropped his camel stick once, and a man raised it up to him, whereupon he rewarded him with 50 dinars. So it's like, you know, he's just riding, drops a stick, someone gives it to him, he's like, all right, here. It's <laughs> a bunch of money. They weren't like rich, right? It was just that, like they lived in a way such that rich people knew, like rich people knew, if I give my money to this person, it's going to go to people who need it. It's not going to go in their own pocket. So then they just give it to them. Like what's easier for them? Just give it to them and then they're going to put it wherever it needs to go. Right? You don't have all this like... <coughs> Allah give us people like that and save us from the bureaucracy of modern modernity. You know, there's a, a theory that the... Uh, I don't know who said it or who wrote about it. Maybe some of you can find it. But there's a theory that the non-profit system was created in order to cripple churches from doing like real movement work because and actually technically you don't need non-profit IRS determination to be a non-profit if you're a church technically you're automatically a non-profit if you're a church it's just the IRS is acknowledging that you're a non-profit <laughs> it's a very interesting technicality right anyways Causes a lot of issues, right? Like, you know, accounting sometimes it makes things very difficult. I don't even know the answer to the question. Some people probably know it. I've been working in Muslim organizations all this time. I don't know the answer to the question. We don't have to do it right now. But one of the questions is how do you give zakat to somebody? Like, do you have to give them a 1099 afterwards? Do they have to pay taxes on the zakat you give them? Because like you're an organization, you're going to write them a check for $10,000. You don't just get $10,000 in America. You have to pay taxes on it. So how does that work? I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. I, never, I was never on the accounting side of things to like think about it, you know. But think about how much of a complication that is. Even, even that you have to even think about that is a complication. You can't just like give someone $100 because they need it, right? Anyways, the Shafi'i selfless generosity is so well known that attempting to recount it is of no, no, no avail. The essence of asceticism is selfless generosity. For anyone who loves something holds tight to it and is not willing to relinquish it. 
Only he in whose eyes this world is but a paltry thing relinquishes wealth, and that is the meaning of asceticism. Proof of the extent of his asceticism and the rigor of his fear of God, as well as his unremitting preoccupation with the hereafter, can be seen from one occasion when Sufyan ibn Uyayna narrated in his presence a hadith that dealt with the tenderness of the heart. On hearing it, a shafi'i lost consciousness until it was said, he has died. Someone said, if he has died, the most eminent person of this epic has died. So Sufyan ibn Uyayna, one of the also imams of that time, narrates a hadith in front of him about the softness of the heart. Imam al-Shafi'i gets so worried about it that he completely passes out. He goes completely unconscious. He thought he died. Because like <laughs> it, it hit him that hard. Sufyan ibn Uyayna, on the, on the issue of Ashura, there's a narration that's hotly debated in the hadith that says that مَنْ وَسَعَ أَهْلِهِ وَعِيَالِهِ فِي يَوْمِ عَشُرَى وَسَعَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ بِقِيَةِ السَّنَى or something like that that whoever spends on their family and their children on the day of Ashura then Allah will um, give them expanse for the rest of the year it's a very, mu- very, very debated narration Ibn Taymiyyah rejected it uh, Sakhawi accepted it Many, it's like big hadith scholars went back and forth on it and um, Sufyan ibn Uyayna says, this is why I said it, Sufyan ibn Uyayna that we just mentioned, radiallahu anh, he's also the one that said, in the dhikr al-saniheena tanzil al-rahmah, that in the mentioning of righteous people, mercy descends. But he said about that hadith, he said, we tried this one for f- 50 years, and we found that it was true. Because <laughs> 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 we tried this one, the one, spend on your family on the day of Ashura, and Allah will take care of you the rest of the year. Says we tried this one for 50 years and we found that it was true. I have no idea where I was on this page. Yeah, a few more minutes. It's too good. I wanted to finish a Shafi'i, but there's like a million pages on a Shafi'i. He loves his Imam, which is a w- good way to get barakah in your studies. Another proof is what was reported by Abdullah ibn Muhammad al-Balawi who said, I was sitting in the company of Umar ibn Nabata reminiscing about the sincere servants and the ascetics when Umar said to me, I have seen no one more conscientious nor more eloquent than Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i. By the way, al-Shafi'i, he's also a hujja in the Arabic language. He's like a, like if he said it, it's good enough. He was a master, master scholar of the Arabic language, master poet. His poetry is very beautiful. If uh, I don't know how much of it might, may or may not be translated, but if anyone reads Arabic, his poetry is very beautiful, and it's not very, um, it's not like overly complicated poetry. It's pretty straightforward, and it's really beautiful. Omar said to me, "I have seen no one more conscientious nor more eloquent than Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i radiAllahu an. On one occasion, I went out with him and Al-Harith ibn Nabid to a Safa. Al-Harith being a student of Salih al-Murri." Whereupon he, Al-Harith, who had a beautiful voice, began to recite the Qur'an. He recited, This is the day they shall not speak, nor will they be permitted to offer excuses. And I saw that Al-Shafi'i's color had changed, and his hair stood on end, and he shook violently and fell down in a faint. When he recovered, he began to say, I seek protection with you from the station of the liars and the rejection of the neglectful. O God, the hearts of the Gnostics have humbled themselves to you, and in awe of you are those who long for you. 
My God, grant me your beneficence, cover me with your protecting veil, and forgive my shortcomings by the munificence of your countenance. Then in Bali we said, we arose and departed. Upon arriving in Baghdad, while the Shafi'i was in Iraq as well, I was sitting on the riverbank making my ablution for prayer when a man passed by and said, O young man, take good care in your ablution, and God will take good care of you in this world and the hereafter. I looked up and beheld a man being followed by a large crowd of people, so I hastened to complete my ablution and took to following in his tracks, whereupon he noticed me and said, Are you in need of anything? I replied, Yes, teach me something of that which God has taught you. He said to me, Know well that whoever is truthful with God will be saved, and whoever fears for his religion will be secure from ruin. And whoever renounces this world, his eyes will know the coolness of beholding God's goodly recompense tomorrow. Shall I go on? I said, Of course. And he said, Whoever has mastered three traits has fulfilled his faith. One who commands the good and acts accordingly. One who forbids iniquity and acts accordingly. And one who keeps within the limits of God. Shall I go on? And I replied, Of course. He said, Be detached from this world and keen for the hereafter. Be truthful to God in all your matters, and you will succeed with those who succeed. Whereupon he passed on, and I asked, Who is this man? And they said, It is a Shafi. <coughs> he gives, a, uh, I'll read just this last paragraph. Uh, Ghazali gives commentary. He says, Consider carefully how he fell down in a faint, and then gave good counsel, and how these events testify to his ascetic detachment and the severity of his fear of God. These degrees of fear and asceticism are only born of an intimate realization of God Most High. For indeed, from among His servants, only those who fear God are those who have knowledge. إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءُ 3528 Ash-Shafi'i did not benefit from these qualities of fear and asceticism by possessing knowledge from the books on the statues, statuettes of forward buying or renting or hiring or the books of jurisprudence. On the contrary, he benefited from the knowledge of the hereafter that is founded upon the Qur'an and the prophetic reports, for in them both are to be found the wisdom of the earlier and later generations. So I guess we should stop here because we're not going to finish him. Radiallahu ta'ala on. It's page 67. We'll continue next time. Inshallah. Any questions or comments on, on this before we go to the other text? That's a high hand. Yes. Can you just speak more to the Quran? He said after he takes me. Uh, what do you want me to speak? You know, like, I want to understand why the Muslim believers specifically in response to that idea. Mm, okay, can you read it? Because um, I just gave the book away. Um, I don't really know I mean like I'm not uh, Where was the verse?
Yeah, this is the day they shall not speak, nor, nor will they be permitted to offer excuses. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if there's like a direct correlation. There probably is. I just, you know, am limited. Um, I think the, the, the easier kind of answer to that is the verse is saying this is a day they're not going to speak and they won't be able to put forth any excuses. So then, you know, the person, the overwhelmingness of that is that like, okay, now like there's no, like, oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from being from the liars because that's going to be the most blatant thing on that day. That there's going to be a lot of people who talked a lot of things and their life was actually way different. And they're not going to be able to make any excuses. And they're not going to be able to defend themselves. They're not going to be able to speak anything. So, so he starts by saying that. And then, you know, just the rest of it is just kind of like turning it over to Allah. That because in the end, that's all we have, right? We know that we have times of what could, things that could be deemed hypocrisy or things that could be not entirely true things that maybe we're, we're working through or whatever it might be. And the only thing we can do is, is try to be as honest as we can and hope for Allah's forgiveness, hope for Allah's mercy. And uh, I don't know if anyone else has any other reflection on it. Bima fatahallahu alaykum minan khayrat. Anyone else have anything? Any connections? Asnawi? Sayyidina Ustad Fuad is in one of the rooms somewhere. If you have anything, just scream it through the walls, inshallah. <laughs> Anyone else have anything? Questions or things on this? Reflections? No reflections, Hatta? Okay. It's not a question. Like, what was it specifically? Because I feel like when you hear stories of like scholars in the past, like, and then like passing out from how much they were impacted by a verse. Yeah. There's always someone who's out. Yeah. That's a really. <laughs> you, you, you didn't make it unless you passed out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well. This I think this deserves a little bit of. A little bit of reflection and contemplation. Um, First, first point I would say is that I actually believe that there's a lot of things that we can't even really begin to comprehend solely because we live in the era, we live in the age of the image. So we are, we are inherently, I mean, people don't like to hear this stuff, but this is my opinion, is that we are inherently limited because we're in the age of the image. I mean, imagine you've never seen an image before. And the only thing you have is stories and your imagination actually works and you can actually see things like in your mind's eye you can actually see things and you and like when you we can't see anything because we're so overloaded with images that we can't make our own anymore unless like maybe that's your field you can probably do it still i don't know can you abdullah probably if that's your field um 
you know like it's <clears throat> but imagine you can actually do that like you think about people who I mean I remember one time there was a sheikh we met from Mauritania he has a really good website actually I forget what it's called fiqsiasi.org or something like that he has the same name as so many other Mauritanian sheikhs his name was Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar Shankiti there's like a bunch of those but uh, he's not the ones that were like in Saudi and stuff but he was telling us we were in this camp and he was like he's like you know when you guys want to have fun and stuff you go to amusement parks or you do whatever he's like when we wanted to have fun in the deserts in Mauritania we sit around the campfire and we exchange stories of tafsir that we memorized. Like that's our world. We memorize Muslim, we memorize Bukhari, you memorize everything. Like that's that's your whole world. <coughs> so this is one one issue is that that's a big difference. Second issue is that even still these big cities and stuff like they say Baghdad in the time of Imam al-Ghazani was hell on earth for the poor and heaven on earth for the rich. So like it wasn't that there weren't bad things happening. There are a lot of bad things happening and so on. But even up to like today, for example, I think about in Egypt. Cairo has a bunch of insanity. But if you want to be a religious person in Cairo, it's pretty easy. Like that world, that avenue of life is there. All of that knowledge and all of that history and all of those people. and all, You can immerse yourself in that world of existence. And if you want to be a completely corrupt disaster person, you can immerse yourself in that existence too. And they're both there. So that's something I think for like Americans, we just can't really fathom because it just doesn't work that way for us. <laughs> like for us, it's like, you know, you find like a little place to sit together and mention God without someone saying you're crazy and you're happy, you know. So this is also part of it. Part two of it is that you have people up to, up to recent times in certain places that they literally they've grown up and lived in places that are just really good everyone prays everyone fasts, everyone gives charity there's certain like societal norms that don't get breached and it's hard to like think about what that would do to a person like when you read for example in english there's a lot of books of imam abdullah al-haddad translated you read imam al-haddad's biography and it's really amazing I mean like he was blind He was just like under 10 years old He prayed hundreds of raka'at a day That was just like The world he lived in you know And like all of his family members They're all shuyukh and they're all imams And like not shuyukh and imams like We have here like Shuyukh and imams you know And I don't know I think it's, it's just a different reality um, I think people like that still exist I just think that they're um, probably in like a hundred years you'll read the stories of the ones that existed in our time but how many people knew them and how many people know their stories probably even in these people's time like how many people knew them and knew their stories probably a handful you know and but more because their society respected that and cared for that and ours doesn't like if you were to bring someone in the American Muslim community and they passed out because they heard a hadith we'd send them to access for mental health evaluation <laughs> we wouldn't we wouldn't be like oh this person is like mashallah uh, they might need it we, they might need it you know in the reality that we live in but these people were perfectly functional in every other area of life their political analysis was amazing their social analysis their understand like they were perfectly functional in every other area of life nothing inhibited them and they hear a hadith and they're gone you know
but I th I think that they still exist. Um, you know, they might not live here. <coughs> we have sensory overload. They had. They also were people who had good istiadad because of their environment, because of who they were, because of every. They had good preparation for greatness. And then on top of it, they took the hands of great people, such that they could reach those levels of greatness. Like Imam Shafi'i didn't just wake up in Gaza one day and like read some books and check out some articles and like he was fainting when he heard a hadith. Like he is fainting when he heard a hadith from years and years and years of like struggle and work and worship and fasting and study and being around the greatest people of the time and all of this kind of stuff you know all the great shafi's died in their 50s all the great shafi's died in their 50s ghazali shafi'i nawawi 40s interesting it's a shafi's died early, <laughs> <laughs> <Shafi's> <laughs> die early. Those who have knowledge are all asleep, except for those who do good deeds. And those who good do good deeds are all deceived, except for those who are sincere. And those who are sincere are always in a state of worry. Hmm. So that explains what was the last uh, state, of state of worry. So they're always worried about the sincerity. So that's Imam Shafi's like, his life. SubhanAllah. He has a really good dua. I think I told you guys before. Allahumma ultaf bina fi majarat bihi. What is it? Ultaf bina fi majarat bihi al maqadir. Allahumma ultaf bina fi majarat bihi al maqadir. This is the dua that saved his life. So, means, Oh Allah, be gentle with us. Allahumma ya latif. Allahumma ya latif ultaf bina fi majarat Oh Allah, you who is subtle and kind. Be kind with us in that which has fallen upon us that is written, basically. Whatever is written for us, be gentle with us in it. Yeah. Okay. Next one. I just need to turn off the recording so that we can start the next session. Inshallah.